Before they can be approved by the Food and Drug Administration, new anti-cancer drugs typically go through three distinct phases of development intended to assess their safety and efficacy. But in recent years, a number of products have shown impressive response rates during first-in-human trials, leading investigators to forego the conventional three-phase approach in favor of expanding those initial trials. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alice Shaw, a thoracic oncologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. Dr. Shaw, can you tell us a bit about the conventional three-phase method of assessing safety and efficacy? How has that generally worked for oncology drugs, and why has it remained the standard in drug development for so long? Sure. Traditionally, there have been three phases of studies for a new drug to enter practice for us in oncology, and these typically fall into the phase one, phase two, and phase three categories, where phase one is really focused on establishing safety and the proper dosing of the new drug. Phase two is focused on examining the activity of the drug in a particular cancer or cancer types. And then phase three is really sort of the final stage of drug development where the new drug is now compared head-to-head against the existing standard of care to show hopefully that the new drug is similar or hopefully better than the existing standard of care. And that is a process that we have undertaken for many years to go through these three stages of drug development. But as you probably can tell, the three phases often can take a number of years. And so traditionally, taking a drug from early on in clinical development, meaning a first-in-man study, all the way to a completed phase three study could easily take years. Sometimes this would be spanning over 10 years. And that is a long time to bring a drug to the clinic. This nevertheless has been the standard approach. There's always been a real need to ensure that the drugs that we bring to the clinic are safe for our patients, that we do understand how active the drugs are, and that we have established that the new drugs we're bringing to the clinic really are bringing something new to our patients, hopefully something that's more active and is going to improve both overall survival as well as hopefully quality of life for our patients with advanced disease. So in a recent Perspective article, Prowl and colleagues from the FDA describe a new model of seamless oncology drug development in which first-in-human trials can be expanded to include, in the end, hundreds of patients. What are the benefits for investigators of adopting an approach like that? In recent years, we've been fortunate to have the development of some new and really highly active drugs for patients with advanced cancer. And we've been fortunate that even in the earliest stages of drug development, which is a phase one or first in man clinical trial, we've gotten a glimpse of how active these drugs are. And for the patients that we're talking about, these are patients with advanced cancers, oftentimes advanced lung cancer, advanced melanoma, other tumor types for which there are not very good existing options. So once we start seeing a very early signal like this, that this drug could be very active, everybody, the investigators, the sponsors, of course, the patients are very excited to gain access to this drug. And, you know, the issue with the traditional drug development is that it's a long process. And so I think the sort of newer trend these days is to, of course, be testing these drugs in the typical phase one study where we are examining safety and how to dose, but we're also trying at the same time to see if there's a glimmer of activity, meaning that the drug is potentially active in a particular type of patient or a particular type of cancer. And then once we get that signal, our hope is that we can really move that more quickly through the clinical development process, not by waiting for additional later stages trials to open, but in fact, by working within 
the same construct of the early phase, phase one trial, and now expanding the number so that we can much more accurately examine the activity of the drug, even in the context of a phase one trial. So looking at that signal, as an investigator, how would you determine whether the initial results of one of these first-in-human trials are promising enough to warrant taking the fast approach rather than using the conventional model? Well, you know, there's a number of ways we do this. I can give you sort of a concrete example of how we did it for one particular targeted therapy called crizotinib, which actually turns out to be a multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And, you know, this is a drug that is approved in the United States for patients with advanced lung cancer harboring either an ALK rearrangement, ALK rearrangement, or a ROS1 rearrangement. And the way we established that this was a particularly active and promising drug for these patients is as follows. You know, we had this trial of crizotinib in, it was a phase one trial. We were focused on safety initially. And then it was discovered through preclinical studies that this drug may be very active for patients who have the specific genetic marker being ALK rearrangement. And these patients with advanced ALK rearranged lung cancer are patients who have very poor standard options. Really, the only other options at the time, this is back in 2007 when we did this study, the only other options they had were chemotherapy. And chemotherapy for advanced lung cancer generally has modest benefits. It does improve overall survival, but the benefit is quite small. And I would say, in general, most patients have kind of a mild response or improvement in their cancer when they are treated with chemotherapy. And so what we saw early on in this phase one trial of crizotinib in patients with the marker ALK rearrangement is that even within the first 20 patients, we saw that the majority of patients were having these dramatic responses, meaning that about 60% of patients, so 6 out of 10 patients, were having dramatic reductions in their disease as well as dramatic improvements in their symptoms. And that type of response we normally would never see with chemotherapy. You know, chemotherapy might have a response rate in the 20 or 30% range, not in the 60% range, and oftentimes be accompanied by a lot of side effects. We did not see that with this drug. And so I think early on we were able to tell that this drug definitely had very promising activity because the response rate was so high, the improvement in symptoms were quite dramatic. And the existing standard of care that we use for patients with this type of cancer was already known to have quite modest or limited benefit. In these expanded trials, do the products ever get assessed against existing treatments, against standard of care, or is it always, as you say in that example, a question where that is evident? That's an excellent question. In these early phase trials where we incorporate expansion so that we can better explore the activity of the drug, these are what we call single arm trials where all of the patients receive the new drug. Only in really typically a later phase setting, like a phase three trial, would we be actually randomizing patients to either the new drug or to the existing standard of care. And so when we do these expansion cohorts within an early phase trial, these are just single arm trials, and we typically are comparing what we're seeing with the new drug to what we refer to as historical data or historical controls, how well has this population of patients who I'm currently treating, how well have they done with the standard treatments, which typically are chemotherapy? Often when the approval process for a drug is accelerated, there's concern that the shortened trials could miss adverse effects that would only appear over the long term or that the benefits may level off over time. With these new seamless models, how are investigators addressing those kinds of issues? Those are 
I think, valid concerns about these new trial designs because these trials are incorporated in the early phase setting, typically a phase one trial that then these trials will then have an expansion, meaning an additional group or groups of patients who are added on. And sometimes the numbers that are allowed to enroll into each of those expansion groups can be very large, much larger than we would ever see in a traditional phase one. So I think there are concerns that in a phase one study, which really is focused on certain aspects of safety and drug levels, for example, and then of course trying to see a glimmer of activity, but it may be that these early phase studies are not as rigorously designed as some of the later phase studies to really prove activity and also prove sort of the safety and dosing of the drug. However, we're trying to address, you know, those concerns. And one way, which I think is a really exciting and excellent way to do this, is through the FDA's new breakthrough therapy designation. And the FDA's had this in place now for several years. A number of the drugs that I've worked on have had this so-called breakthrough therapy designation. And really what this involves is that when there is a signal of, I would say, particularly efficacious activity of a new drug seen in a phase one study, I think at that point, that's the perfect time to really engage the FDA to review the preliminary data. Oftentimes at that point, there's not a huge amount of data. It's early data still, but we're seeing some signs of activity. And I think involving the FDA at that point really helps to give the sponsor and the investigators more feedback on how to develop the drug in terms of evaluating safety and in terms of evaluating the numbers of patients we need to really prove efficacy. And so this FDA breakthrough therapy designation allows drugs to really be highlighted that are showing promising activity and where the FDA will now be more involved in terms of developing the drug. That means more interactions between the FDA and the sponsor and investigators. Finally, do you see this seamless drug development model moving beyond oncology products into other areas of medicine? Absolutely. I think this oncology has really led the way here. Of course, in oncology, we have patients who are really in dire need for these new therapies. And so I think this type of drug development has really helped countless numbers of patients access new drugs that have really been life-saving. And I think that this will definitely pave the way forward for other human diseases as well. I think this model has worked very well and can definitely be brought to other disciplines. Thank you, Dr. Shaw.